Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 6, 60 through, verses 60 through 69. But in order, really, to speak about that, we, we have to look at the preceding passages in John 2, the preceding seven verses, um, 51 to 58, in order for us to get kind of the whole picture of what the Lord is talking about. And this is a particularly significant and important all passages of the scripture are important but this one focusing on on the uh, on the eucharist which we do we do have to look at very closely we, we you know the eucharist is called the source and summit of the church it is it is that arena in which the union of the incarnate lord and his people come together in in the very saving mystery of our union with Christ and our sharing in his predestination to eternal life. So since this becomes that particularly significant moment, that particularly significant element of of our redemption, of our salvation, then it really is very important for us to think and to pray very deeply about these mysteries. In the first part in John six fifty one to 58 is where Jesus says, I tell you most solemnly, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. Anyone who does not eat my flesh, who does eat my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life, and I shall raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. The mystery of the Eucharist, spelled out for us in a few verses of the Gospel of John, in Jesus' Bread of Life narrative, which he which he proclaims in the in the synagogue of Capernaum. Then the gospel goes on after that, but and and we'll we'll look at what that what the out fallout from that proclamation really is. But first to look at it, John uses the word um, sarks. He uses the word flesh and not soma, uh, the word body that the synoptics use and that St. Paul uses. But John uses flesh for a very particular reason. And it's the same that in his prologue when he speaks about the word of God becoming flesh for us. And um, it's because um, that he wants to make it very sure that we know that this is the fundamental, the basic elements of himself as an existent person. It is, in fact, therefore, the proclamation that what we share in is the incarnation of Christ. For the very way that John does that in the first chapter, in the first, in the prologue, in his first chapter of his gospel, he uses, he uses that word to indicate the incarnation. So when he deliberately uses that now in the Eucharistic narratives of chapter 6, he uses the same word that he used for the incarnation of Christ, which means that it is more than a spiritual union. It is a union that takes place in the flesh. It is a union that gives reason and purpose in many ways to the incarnation of the Lord. 
For if he came to share our humanity with us, share the experiences with us, and redeem the human experience, so too, then, does he share with us himself as the incarnate Lord. And in so doing, then, as the, it is in kind of a way, it's kind of a, a nuptial um, I don't, you don't want to push that too far, but kind of a nuptial relationship where, where two flesh becomes one. And so the flesh of the Lord then joins itself to our flesh and our blood as his does, so that we carry within us the life of the living God. We do that sacramentally, and there is an element of that in all the sacraments, but it is a dramatic element which takes place in the Eucharist. So then there's the, many of the commentators say that, the, that this caused problems with those who are hearing it, with the Jews. Because we know, of, we know first of all, that to say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you, you, you know that, that he is referring to himself living within us. For the Jews, um, their right to election, their right to being chosen is the fact that they share in the covenant of Abraham and that Abraham's blood flows in their veins. So they are united to Abraham in his person, exactly as Jesus is saying, you will be united with me in my person, and that where I am, you will be, and where you are, there I am. And that was the same relationship between Abraham and Israel. So that when Jesus is saying this, while the Jews might be, while the commentators are saying, you know, that they, that they found this kind of a disgusting image because um, they do know, for instance, that to take in the blood of anything is to make them share in their life, which is why there were such strict dietary rules about eating the blood of animals. And this is kind of what kosher meat is all about. You get, you get the, you, you ex- extract um, that element of the animal which uh, would make the animal present within your life. So it's the preservation of their pristine relationship with the Creator and their pristine covenantal relationship with Abraham that causes some of these dietary kosher laws regarding at least the consumption of meat. Well, when Jesus is talking this way then, then it should become very clear to them um, that what he is talking about, they may take it too literally, they may take it to, to have kind of a strange aura of cannibalism about it, which certainly is not his intention, but at the same time they did not consider themselves to be cannibalistic to share in the blood of Abraham. So they know, first of all, that they're not quite sure, they do not understand the sacramental sense of the Eucharist yet. And so they probably do, in some way, shape, or form, think of this as a disgusting proposition. On the other hand, on the other hand, they have to have some kind of a subliminal understanding of what he's saying about his role among the people of Israel, that he is somehow or other claiming, and this in John's Gospel, of course, crescendos, um, where he must be saying something um, about his relationship to the people of Israel. For if he is saying, unless you eat the flesh and, and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you will not have life in you, he is identifying himself as life, as the source of life, and therefore as the source of covenant. 
And so they do have some kind of an oblique understanding that Jesus is replacing Abraham with himself. And it is for both of those reasons that they find his mode of doing that may be disgusting, but they also understand underneath what that means because they do understand what it means to have the flesh and the blood of another human being flowing in your veins. And they do know, therefore, in this ancestral relationship that they have with Abraham, that this is the source of, this is also the source and the summit of their election, of their understanding of being chosen, of having a special relationship with God and a special place in the story of humanity. So that <clears throat> as, as Jesus now begins to speak about something which will certainly be solidified in the experience of, in the, experience of, of the, the Paschal, Jesus' final meal with the apostles, and with the practice and the understanding of the early church, that this certainly is the foundation of a deep and abiding grasp of the fundamental meaning of sacramentality in the New Covenant. That all of these things, well, we have a hard time expressing it. Because if we say symbol um, in our modern terminology, then that becomes an extrinsic sign. If we say symbol in the way that the fathers meant it, and in the way it was understood in the earliest days of Christianity, then it is kind of, the Germans had a word for it, real symbolism, um, um, real symbolitate and and what it means is that the symbol contains that which it symbolizes and that's a radical difference if you read commentaries on the eucharist for instance in the patristic age they will speak in terms they will speak in terms of of symbol and so then in the modern age in the modern age certainly beginning hundreds of years ago, so certainly this was the meaning and the understanding, even in the 16th century, in the, uh, in, in the, in the Reformation era, that, um, that they say, well, the fathers used the word symbol, but then they took the modern um, Renaissance rational understanding of symbol, and they, they eviscerated it. They, they took from, out, from inside of it, it's the presence of that which it represented. And so symbol now becomes simply an extrinsic sign. So we have a hard time. We shouldn't use that word very much because it doesn't convey an authentic biblical meaning because when, when the fathers use the word symbol, it contains that which it symbolizes. So language can do funny things for us. And, uh, and as, as, as we remove ourselves, as we move through time, that language used in the earlier centuries of the church sometimes does not have the same meaning it does in the contemporary world. So then, if we can't really use casually the word symbol because culture, society um, has, has changed the meaning of it, then how can we talk about this without becoming primitively... Um, uh, primitively simplistic about it and uh, and 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 talk about then something which Jesus is does not mean and this was a crisis certainly at the end of the 19th century um, the the physicality of the Eucharist we know that there is a relationship because we certainly know of the Eucharistic miracles that have taken place and uh, we know that even for instance in in the in the late 14th century, um, 
uh, 15th century, Nicholas of Cusa was sent up into Germany to suppress the cults of the bleeding hosts and so forth. But we, we shouldn't be surprised that there are Eucharistic miracles in which physical manifestations of the bodily nature of Christ is manifest. Um, there's no reason for us, certainly we, there's no reason for t- us to doubt that that can authentically take place because of the relationship between, Eucharist, uh, between the Eucharist and the incarnate Lord. So then, what, we, what we're dealing with then is this, this, this radical idea that not in the modern word of symbol, but in the deepest word of sacrament, we do eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and we do drink his blood, that he comes into us as a person and lives and dwells within us as a person. It's interesting, um, for instance, even how over the ages we've tried to cope with that, we've tried to express that. And uh, certainly when, 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 when I was young, I, I remember um, being told we should never chew the host. We should always let it dissolve in our mouths. Because as little kids, we were told, because you'll hurt the Lord if you chew it. And everyone says, oh, isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that childish? Aren't we glad we're all beyond that? And the answer to that is, of course, no, that's not true. That it gave us a real sense of who the Eucharist was. And while it might have become, you know, too anthropomorphic, too much of a, of a human thing, nevertheless, as children, we, we came to understand that this was radically different from anything else in our lives. And I do remember also one of the sisters in grade school saying, when you receive communion, when, when you still have receiving communion, in other words, when it is still right inside of you, there's no need to genuflect to the tabernacle because you are yourselves a tabernacle. And, and that's a very important, and we can say, well, that's also, you know, kind of childish, and you shouldn't say stuff. No, it, it's absolutely correct. We do become the bearers of the Lord. We do become the tabernacles of the world during that time when we are engaged in the sacramental encounter with the flesh and the blood of the, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then the gospel then in John six sixty sixty nine goes on and says, After hearing his doctrine, many of his followers of Jesus said, This is intolerable language. How could anyone accept it? And Jesus was aware that his followers was complaining about it and said, Does this upset you? What if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh has nothing to offer. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And now we say, well, now it sounds like Jesus just contradicts exactly what he said. The flesh has nothing to offer. The flesh in this sense, in this sense means human understanding. It means the consciousness of humanity, not just the physicality, but the consciousness. And so he says, this is spoken to you in the spirit of life. This is spoken to you in what the fathers called symbol and what we cannot call because symbol means something different today. And the best word I suppose we can do is we refine a concept of what this means. The best that, that, that we can do is speak of it as sacramentality. And so he says that basically it is, it is the sacramentality that gives life and human consciousness has nothing to offer you about it. The words I have spoken to are spirit and they are life. The words that I have spoken to you are the real reality of the sacred language of the Lord. 
And so we find then that Jesus is understanding that this is going to be this is going to be um, a stumbling block. This is going to be a difficulty for many people, and we certainly know that today it remains such, even within the the larger umbrella of the Christian uh, communities, the Christian assemblies. That uh, in even within, unfortunately, our own church, we have succumbed to kind of what we might call a one-dimensional understanding of the language of Scripture, where basically it is kind of just the surface meaning without our penetrating into the deeper mysteries, which is why those little customs from the old days were not so bad, because they took the they took the one-dimensional language and they interpreted them. Um, into into lived experiences, into participation in the parts of the of the youth, and and of the adults as well. Um, and so, what what we did with all of this was then try to give some depth and breadth, some some embeddedness within our own human spirit, some embeddedness within our own consciousness of what this was all about. And um, and so Jesus is saying, does this upset you? And many are saying, this is intolerable. How could anyone accept it? And this is what we've talked about before. What's intolerant? What, what could people not accept? Except that Jesus is to replace Abraham as the patriarch of the covenant. That's what they cannot accept. Plus, they all also cannot accept the graphic way in which he presents this to us as a way of being united with him. Because certainly it is by natural generation that the Hebrews are related to Abraham. But this seems to be now almost a physical intrusion into the sensitivities of the Hebrew people that uh, somehow or other there is another way besides natural generation in which the life of a person can live within another and which the life of the incarnate Lord can live within his people. And so he says, um, does this upset you? And then he says, kind of, it's a rhetorical question. What if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Which, of course, they are to see, the disciples at least, are to see the ascension of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, this is not for you personally to figure out, but this is for you to accept as coming from a divine source. It is not the, it is the spirit that gives life, not the flesh. In other words, it is it is the Spirit of God who communicates to you the meaning of the sacramentality of the flesh and the blood of the Lord, and it is not natural human reason that arrives at such a proposition. Um, but then he goes, Jesus goes on to say, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the outset those who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And so he knows that this is not going to be universally accepted. He knows, for instance, that in the state of fallen human nature, there are those who do not understand because they don't want to understand. There are those who are so wedded to the personal traditions of their lives that they're not open to the newness of the revelation of the Messiah. They're not, they're not open to the newness of the revelation of the Lord. Um, explaining more deeply the mystery of the relationship between God and humanity. And so he goes on, he said, This is why I told you that no one could come to me unless the Father allows him. And after this, many of his disciples left him and stopped going with him. 
And so he now is quoting what he said before, no one can come to me unless the Father allow him to do so. Now this is kind of a phrase that's part of the happy hunting ground of the Calvinist predestinarians, that, you know, faith is a gift that, uh, that the Father only gives to some and not to all. And so that there is then a definite idea of predestination to salvation and predestination to damnation. But that's not what this phrase means. That's what it meant in the 16th century, once again skimming the surface of the words of Scripture without understanding. What does it mean that the Father allows? That means simply that the Father gives the initiative to believe. And we've seen before that this is embedded in some of the early councils of Orange and all in 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 the fifth and sixth centuries that the initiative of faith comes from the father this is the father allowing us to believe there is no indication that there is any restriction on to whom that is given the the idea is it will be given to all and uh, and but some will not accept which is exactly what jesus said there are some of you who do not believe And so while you have had the initiative of faith, the gift of faith, you have refused to accept it, you have refused to believe it. And so in order for you to come to me, you have to accept the Father's gift. He has to give you that permission, but you have to accept it. And, uh, and if you do not accept it, then, of course, you have squandered the initium fide. You have squandered the initiative of faith. You have squandered the Father's permission to know who the Son of Man is. So after this, many of his disciples left him and stopped going with him. And this is interesting, too, because this is, once again, you know, this is one of the the strange overlays that we find in the scriptures with the contemporary age, with the contemporary world, that uh, what went on then goes on now as well. How many people have turned away from the Lord because they have not accepted the Father's permission to know him? And how many have turned away for the very reason that this gospel, these gospel passages are all about? Because the whole idea of the sacramental consumption of the person of Jesus Christ is something that they cannot accept and will not accept. And then Jesus said to the twelve, well, what about you? Do you want to go away too? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, who shall we go to? You have the message of eternal life, and we believe that you are the Holy One of God. And so once again, now Jesus is kind of culling the crowd, and he turns to the disciples and he said, this has been too difficult for so many people. Is it too difficult for you as well? Peter doesn't say, no, we grasp it completely. We really understand the whole thing and we're kind of excited. He doesn't say that. He says, we don't have anywhere else to go. We don't have anywhere else to go because we've come to believe basically you are the Holy One of God. We've come to believe that you are the Messiah. And so we follow you even though we do not comprehend. And I think, you know, that's also a challenge to the contemporary world. How many people say, if I can't, if I don't understand it, then I don't believe it? Well, that's kind of an exclusionary statement, you know. If, if, you, if you understand it completely, then, then the role of faith of accepting that which is beyond you really has no role in your life. First of all, you don't understand it completely. Um, but what you do, you have... And, and this is important, too, in the whole idea of human understanding, that, but you have a sense of it. 
And, and, and I think that, you know, this is where you get a very strong argument in the Western philosophical tradition of kind of accepting a more Augustinian idea of, of knowledge that, uh, that there is kind of an, an unconscious in the tripartite soul, in the memory of the tripartite soul that Augustine speaks of, there is a sense of, of a residual a pot- knowledge and potentia of the things of the divine. And so when, in fact, we live in grace, when, in fact, we live... Um, if, free of our sins, as free as we can be of our sins, using the sacramental power of the confessional, which once again is the presence of the Lord, um, that then we we are free to be able to sense the truth of the things that we say that we cannot completely comprehend by reason. Um, John Paul and Fides at Ratio, paragraph 22, reminds us that reason is impaired by sin, and so we cannot rely on it completely. And what we see in the modern apostasy is so many people relying on a faculty damaged by sin in order for them to arrive at what they believe to be truth. Their truth is going to be disfigured, and their truth is going to be distorted because they lack that element beyond reason which allows us to sense in the depth of our human soul the truth of the words of the Lord, the truth of the teaching of the church, the truth, therefore, of the faith. It is not a pure rational acceptance. It is an acceptance not only in reason, which is important, but in the sense that we have within ourselves as being children of God and creatures of God, that we kind of, we cannot always articulate that which we sense. But if we sense the reality of what the Lord is saying without being able to express it in, in, in language which mutates through the centuries and in reason which is impaired by sin, that somehow or other the gift of faith brings alive in us a sense of the divine, a sense of the present, a presence, a sense of the truth of the words of the Lord. And while we can come around to deal with it in our minds, in our reason, and so forth, we never grasp it and capture it completely. Much of it is left to the sense of the faith that is within us, which is a gift of the Father, which is handed on through the church, and which is nourished within us by the communities to which we belong. Woe to the person who distorts the sense of believing that should exist in the human soul because of the teachings and the words of Jesus Christ, which are not always able to be totally grasped by human reason, but which are sensed in the depths of the soul. So so today, as we reflect on this Eucharistic mystery, maybe we should ask the Lord to help to clear away the, 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 the clutter that impairs us to sense the truth of what Jesus says and to allow ourselves then to experience in small and sometimes concrete ways those things which the Lord has spoken about relating to, in relationship to the sacrament of the Eucharist. 
And and we might want to, in our own life, find small practices to reaffirm that belief within us so that as we approach him, we approach not only what we know to be the body and the blood of the Lord, but approach what we sense in our souls to be the real presence of Jesus Christ who will enter into our lives and become for us the patriarch of the new covenant, the one whose blood flows in our veins, the one who binds us, therefore, to the election of the Son and helps us to share with him in his destiny. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.